Thank you, Jackie. That's actually out of a portion of the scripture today that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 29, second half of verse 14 through verse 30. I just entitled the message today, Love is Blind. And so the story is told of the cruel and tyrannical Baron Raskus and his beautiful and kind wife, the Lady of Raskus. When the Baron was summoned to the Crusades by his king, he was concerned that his wife would turn to another either because of his death or his long absence, that he commanded his wizard, Maligan, to make her ugly just after his departure and then for the wizard to join him in the Crusades so the spell could not be undone. It was done as the king commanded with the result that the good lady uh, had the face of a horse. Despite her condition, she managed the lands of the barren well during his absence, and the people grew to love her with no thought to her appearance. After seven years, the baron returned without Maligan and was uh, repulsed by his wife's ugliness. Without Maligan, there was no way to reverse the spell, and his wife was utterly rejected by the baron, who, if it were possible, had become even more insufferable since the wars. Word was sent far and wide, offering a reward to any wizard or magician who could reverse the spell. Many tried, none succeeded. One day, a poor beggar arrived at the gates and, after gaining admission to the baron's presence, identified himself as Maligan. He recounted before the entire court how the baron abandoned him when he had been wounded and left him for dead. Years of slavery followed, and he lost most of his skills before he was finally able to regain his freedom. He had now returned to remedy the situation. When the lady of Raskus was called into the king's presence, the wizard's words proved not to transform the lady to her earlier beauty, but instead transformed the baron, uh, the baron a similar horse-faced appearance. <laughs> not quite how he expected, right? It was only in this condition that the baron finally learned to love and cherish his wife and become the kind of caring lord he should have been from the start. The moral of the story has two parts to it. Number one, out of evil came good, out of ugliness, beauty. And number two, he who turns to evil will at the end find it turned against him. This is significant as we think about this passage of Scripture. We're going to be talking about Jacob and how he's deceived and doesn't get one wife but two out of all of this. But I think about um, this concept of love being blind In talking with couples prior to marriage, I always find it interesting uh, some of the statements they make and how they view the person uh, they are in love with. There was one couple that I knew where the man filled out a reference form for the lady and he scored her a perfect 10 on everything. Uh, The employer already knew that this wasn't the case, (laughs) that she wasn't a perfect 10, but there was room for improvement. All of us have room for improvement. But the boyfriend didn't see, it at that, didn't see it that way or at that time. Another uh, young man said that he would be fine with letting the young lady always get her way after marriage. Right? <laughs> we also reap what we sow, don't we? So once the honeymoon was over, the young man probably realized that his now wife was not a perfect 10 in all those areas on their reference form. There were adjustments that had to be uh, made, made that had to take place in some recognition of reality in order for the couple to remain married. And this couple has been married for 24 years. They're still married. The same thing happened with the second young man. Reality sank in, and in order for the marriage to work, there had to be a give and take on both sides. 
and not one person always getting their own way. And again, this marriage is still going strong. But, you know, we run into that, don't we? Love is blind. Like when we're in that honeymoon phase, when we're dating someone, man, they're just the gra- they're the greatest, right? They have no failures, no faults at all. They're, they're the best thing ever. And, uh, you know, love just blinds us to that kind of stuff. And then reality hits and we reap what we sow, right? <laughs> Sometimes we have to lie in the bed that we've made um, because maybe we didn't see some things that we should have recognized beforehand. Most of us can probably say that we've been blinded by love at one time in our lives. But if, if you've not been blinded by love, we can probably admit that we have reaped what we have sown, whether positive or negative, whether good or bad. We can say that we've reaped what we've sown. We'll see today that Jacob was blinded by love, which caused him to miss that the fact that Laban deceived him. Jacob had used deception with his father and brother, and now he was getting a taste of his own medicine. And everything that took place in this narrative, we cannot miss the fact that God is in control and his sovereign plan will be fulfilled. We can all agree today that our big idea is we reap what we sow. And so as we think about that, would you bow your heads with me as we just commit this passage to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today as a people hungry for your word. We ask, Lord God, that you would just pour out your Holy Spirit on us. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the message that you want us to to take away today from this passage of Scripture. I pray, Lord God, that we would not miss it. But you would just cause it to to jump off the page at us, Lord God. And Lord, as a, as a weak and, and cracked and chipped vessel, I come in humility today and ask that you would speak through me. That your people would hear your voice and not mine. Only truth would be spoken here today. As we just lift this passage up to you now for your honor and glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We have two points today that we're going to look at. The first is wages, and the second one is weddings. The first one is verse, second half of verse 14 through verse 20. And we see in verse, the second half of verse 14 just a time stamp here. Look at that verse with me if you would. It kind of just gives us an idea of what, when this is all taking place. It ties it back into the, the, the passage that Pastor Mark shared last week. If we look at the verse, first part of verse 14, it says, Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. And then the second half of verse 14 says, After Jacob had stayed with him for a, month, for a whole month. So we see that uh, Jacob has arrived there in Haran. Um, he's identified himself um, to Rachel um, there at the well. And uh, she runs to get her father. Her father runs out to greet Jacob and, and invites him to come and stay with them. And so he's been there a month. And so um, that's what we kind of learned from this. <clears throat> he, um, during, after that month has passed by, what we see then is that Laban pulls Jacob aside to begin to talk to him about wages and negotiating with him. And so let's look at verses 15 to 20. <clears throat> this is what God's word says there. Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. 
Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had uh, weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. You see how love is blind there? <laughs> Makes things go by quick. It sure does. So we see some negotiations here, right? This would have been a little bit unusual in the ancient Near East since family members were not usually paid. So, you know, when we read that in our modern day, we're like, yeah, just because he's a family member, you shouldn't just, like, not pay him. Like, you should pay him something, right? But that's not the culture of this day. He would have just been taken care of by the family because he was a family member. So this would have been a little bit unusual in the ancient Near East for Laban to then say, hey, well, I think you should be paid. They, uh, again, they were taken care of as a family member by the head of the household. Therefore, there wasn't any need for them to, to take a wage, now, Matthews in his commentary says his initial question is rhetorical, meaning Jacob should not be utilized without compensation lest he be a slave. Yet he cannot establish the standard of payment for Jacob since he is not merely a hired worker either. So he's like, well, you're not going to work for free as a slave. You know, I'm not going to treat you like a slave, but I can't really treat you like a hired hand either because you're not that. You're family. So then he's just kind of asking Jacob. He's like, well, what do you think? How many of us would like our employer to do that, right? What do you think you should get paid? Well, let me tell you. Well, I think I should get like a six-figure income, right? To flip hamburgers at McDonald's, right? No, perhaps not. So Jacob's not a slave. Slaves didn't receive any wages. Jacob's not a hired hand. Hired hands were given a specific wage. Laban uh, should have realized that Jacob was not going to remain in Haran permanently, but would be returning to Canaan after he found a wife. So perhaps the offer of wages was to prepare Jacob for his future. He's like, you're going to have to start building some kind of wealth. If Jacob's going to marry one of his daughters, then he would want Jacob to be well-established, right? You don't want to give your daughter to some dude who's just like a loser, right? Someone who's just can't hold a job down. Isn't making any kind of wage. No, you don't want to give your daughter to someone like that. So Jacob's thinking about not, not only... Um, I'm sorry, Laban's not only thinking about Jacob's future, but his daughter's future. Jacob uh, came to Laban with nothing, which means he would not have the ability to pay a bride price for uh, for for Rachel. Maybe Laban was offering a wage to Jacob so he could begin to save for a dowry. Now, none of this is directly expressed in this passage of Scripture, so we're left to speculate concerning why Laban is offering to pay Jacob as a family member. From Jacob's uh, response, we realize that he understands that he does not have anything to give for a bride price. And so we see this a side note then with Laban's two daughters. The narrator gives us some information about Laban's daughters before sharing Jacob's offer about wages. Leah's name means cow or weary. She was the older of the two. She had weak eyes. Now, this does not necessarily mean that she had poor eyesight. The Hebrew word can also mean soft delicate or tender. Leah probably didn't have the bright eyes that sparkled with fire in them. Women with bright, sparkling, and fiery eyes were considered to be beautiful in the oriental culture of that day. We have to remember that in the culture of the day, women were covered from head to toe with only their eyes and cheeks exposed, and so their eyes told a lot about them. I imagine that Leah was perhaps more reserved and contemplative, 
which her eyes revealed about her. And so it's, it's not that she couldn't see well. I think it's just that she was maybe contemplative or, or thoughtful. And so, you know, you, kinda, you can tell that when you see somebody with their eyes, right? And it doesn't mean that they're not beautiful. It doesn't mean that they're not valuable. It doesn't mean that they're not intelligent. It's just that they have these contemplative eyes, these, you know, you just don't see this fire in their eyes. Well, Jacob obviously didn't find that attractive. And what we see then with Rachel, her name means Hugh. And it's fascinating that Rachel is a shepherdess taking care of her father's sheep. And her name is Hugh. She was the younger of the two. She was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, I'm not sure how the narrator knew that Rachel had a beautiful figure, the shape of her body, since um, she would have been covered head to toe, you know, in, in a long dress or a gown. Other translations say that Rachel also had a beautiful or lovely face, which probably meant that she had bright, fiery, sparkling eyes. One other translation says uh, she has a beautiful countenance, which would have been apparent through the bright, fiery, sparkling eyes that were valued uh, in that day and age. She was probably outgoing, energetic, and fiery in her personality, which Jacob saw in her eyes. That's all he's seeing, right? And he found that to be attractive. Gangle and Bramer say apparently both of Laban's daughters served as walking commercials for his business operation. Leah means cow. <laughs> Rachel means you. He's like, hey, this is what I do for a living. I'm just going to name my daughters that way. Let's make it easy. So Jacob was in love with Rachel. Was this love at first sight? Perhaps. We see Jacob's offer. He offers to work for Laban for seven years in return for Rachel's hand in marriage. This would have been a generous bride price. Walton, Walton says in texts from, from Newsy, which is ancient times, the, the typical bride price was 30 to 40 shekels. Since a shepherd's annual wage was 10 shekels a year, Jacob's in effect paying a premium by working seven years, but he is in no way, uh, in his in, he is in no position to negotiate. So think about that. He's coming in. He knows he's probably going to be working with the, sh the sheep and the cows uh, with Rachel. So he's going to maybe get that price, 10, 10 shekels a year. He's like, okay, uh, so the bride price is like you know, 30 or 40. I'm just going to shoot high, right? Like I don't want anybody else to swoop in and steal Rachel away from me. So I'm going to just shoot high. Seven years. I'll work for seven years. 70 shekels. Now, with the way the housing market is right now, there are individuals who are making high offers or higher offers in an effort to try to guarantee that they'll get the house, right? And in fact, cash offers are being accepted over all other offers because people are greedy. Uh, it's, just, it's just the way it is, right? Yeah, I'm going to go for the cash offer. Now I have a cash in hand. I don't have to wait uh, for that money to come. And so I kind of liken it to that. Like, there's people that are offering higher because they want to make sure that they can get this house. And you watch these shows on television, too, and, and a lot of times they'll come in with a higher offer than the asking price because they've been looking for a long time and haven't been able to get a house because other people keep outbidding them. And so they finally come in with this higher bid in order to try and guarantee that they're going to get the house. And so I, I kind of liken that to what Jacob is doing here. He's like, I don't want anybody to swoop in and steal Rachel, so I'm going to offer this amount. Jacob wants to, like I said, make sure that he'll be able to marry Rachel so he offers more than the usual bride price. And Laban is agreeable to the terms. We see his response here. He tells Jacob that it's better for him to give his daughter to him and to any other man. And the cultural practice of endogamy, 
or endogamy is at play here. Again, that, that just means marrying within the family instead of outside the family. So he's like, I'm fine with, with giving her to you. Um, it's just better that way. And perhaps Laban saw the character and work ethic of Jacob in that first month and realized that he would be a good spouse for his daughter. And so Laban encourages Jacob to stay with him. And Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. The seven years only seemed like a few days to Jacob because of his love for Rachel. He's just blind, right? Love is blind. Judy and I got engaged between our sophomore and junior year of college, and, and then we got married a, a year be, the year between our junior and senior year of college. And I'll be, I'll be honest with you, I don't, remember, I don't remember everything that happened in that year because it seemed to go by so fast. We were both in school full-time and, and plan, planning a wedding at the same time, and I'm sure Judy felt the same way. Like, where did that time go? That year of engagement just was gone, and it was time for the wedding. Love has a way of blinding us to everything that happens between certain events, and Jacob experienced that with the seven years of service just flying by. He's like, where did those years go? I feel that way with our kids all grown up now. You're like, where did, they, where did that time go? Our oldest granddaughter just turned three. I'm like, wow, you know, three years ago, she was just this little tiny thing. And now she's all grown up and asking Pappy to take her fishing and stuff like that. She got a fishing pole for her birthday. Yes, we can go fishing. We can do a whole lot of other stuff too. So. <laughs> That time just flies by. But I want us to be reminded of the fact that we reap what we sow. That's the, the big idea today. We see Jacob maturing in his character as he patiently waits to marry Rachel. I think this is incredible. He was sowing patience and reaping God's blessing of time passing quickly. This was not the case when it came to Jacob's birthright and Isaac's blessing, right? God uh, used human sinful circumstances to accomplish his plan and purpose concerning Jacob being the covenant carrier, even though, it may come, even though it may come sooner than later for him. While Jacob was impatient, waiting for God to fulfill his promise, we now see that he is sowing patience when it comes to finding a wife. Before, you know, he, he said uh, to Esau, Esau comes in uh, from the field, Remember? And he says, I am, I'm going to die if I don't get some food. Can I have some of that red stew? And, and Jacob goes, well, sure you can, but just sell me your birthright first. He's like, uh, what is that to me? I don't care. Here it is. Well, let's make it official. <laughs> I want to make sure that, that you don't go back in your word. And then what does he do with his father? He doesn't wait for his father to bless him. He takes the advice of his mother, and he dresses up in Esau's clothing and puts a goat hair on his arms and in his neck, and he goes into his father and takes the special meal into him and, and receives the blessing under deception. So you see, at, at one point he wasn't patient, but here he's willing to work seven years. And so his character is developing. He's maturing as a man. And so that's important for us. See, the first principle then is that patience is a virtue. We've been told that a lot of times. Have you ever tried to run ahead of God in his timing? Yeah. And then sometimes I've been uh, not wanting to run ahead of God. I've waited too long, and he has to get a two-by-four out, right, and hit me over the head. He says, it's time to move, Stuart. Time to go. Maybe it was with a relationship or a financial decision, a job change or a career path that you were trying to run ahead of God, and how did it work out for you? Was it a positive or a negative thing? In hindsight, did you wish that you would have waited on God's timing and his plan? Is there a situation currently where you are struggling to be patient and wait on God's timing? 
And maybe that's that first next step that you need to take today, and that's to patiently wait on God's timing and plan for the situation I'm currently involved in. Wait on Him. Because we will reap what we sow. If we run ahead of what He's trying to accomplish, then we might sow something that we don't really want. We can trust God to accomplish His plan and purpose in our lives at just the right time. We just have to wait on Him, spend time in prayer, reading His Word, seeking the counsel of other believers as you're making these decisions. Jacob had reaped what he had sown, and it was patience. The seven years seemed like a few days. The wages were set, and and Jacob had uh, faithfully fulfilled his obligation of the bride price, and it was time to celebrate and consummate his marriage. And so the second point this morning is weddings, and it's verses 21 to 30. Would you look at those verses with me if you would? Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave uh, his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter uh, in marriage before the older one. <clears throat> Finish the daughter's uh, bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. So Jacob did so. He finished the, the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and he worked for Laban another seven years. <clears throat> so Jacob asked for his wife so that he could consummate his marriage. He had patiently waited, and now it was time uh, to celebrate. And we see Laban's deception here. Laban prepared a feast and brought all the people together. The wedding feast uh, would last one week, as we'll see in verse 27, or we saw in verse 27. Jacob is expecting to receive Rachel as his wife, and perhaps Rachel is with him during the feast, but something happens after dark. That's when bad things happen, right? It's after dark. Laban took Leah and gave her to Jacob as his wife. Jacob consummated his marriage with Leah by laying with her. They were intimate with each other. So how did Laban get away with this deception? Part of it is the fact that love is blind, right? Jacob's patience had reached its limit, and he was ready to consummate his marriage with Rachel. Perhaps in his eagerness, he was not very attentive to whom was in bed with him. There were all kinds of other ideas and speculations. It's very likely that wine was part of the feast, and potentially Jacob had had a little too much to drink, which would have clouded his mind. The bridal attire would have covered the women's or the woman's body completely, and the bridal veil would have covered all but Leah's eyes. Culturally, the veil may have been uh, worn during the sexual act. The tent where Jacob and Leah would have spent the night would have been dark or dimly lit. Laban may have had Leah wear some of Rachel's clothes, which would recall what Jacob had done with his father um, uh, and wearing Esau's clothing at the prompting of his mother. So scripture doesn't tell us how the deception was carried out. It just tells us that it happened. Laban just switches those young ladies. And the narrator gives us a side note about Laban giving his servant girl Zilpah to Leah as, his, as her maidservant. But 
Jacob got a morning wake-up call, didn't he? Not like he had expected. The morning light and a clear head revealed that Jacob had married Leah instead of Rachel. Now, Jacob confronted Laban about this, his deception. He said, I thought the deal was to work for you for seven years, and then I would marry Rachel, but why did you give Leah to me? Well, we reap what we sow, don't we? While Jacob was maturing and developing as the covenant carrier, he was, he was experiencing a taste of his own medicine. He had sown deception with his father and brother, and now he was reaping deception. Hamilton says this, The nemesis is made all the more pungent by the fact that Jacob is caught in the same device he himself had once used. He pretended to be Esau in front of Isaac. Leah pretends to be Rachel next to Jacob. While Jacob's ruse was pretending to be his older brother, Leah's ruse is pretending to be her younger sister. Jacob is deceived as he deceived his father. In Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, you read these words. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. And then in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes this to the believers there. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And so this is true for us also. When we do things that please our sinful nature, there will be consequences for those behaviors. There's going to be some sowing that's going to take place, or reaping, I'm sorry, of what we sowed. When we do things that please the Lord, we will experience eternal life. So God knew what he was doing through Laban's deception. I don't want us to miss this today. This is the thing that kind of flipped my brain just a little bit this week. And it's the second principle. God is sovereign and will accomplish his plan. What's so significant about Jacob marrying Leah instead of Rachel? Mark's going to bring it out next week. But Jacob and Leah's fourth child is Judah. I want to read something to you from the book of Matthew. I want you to listen to it. This is significant. And this is something I've read how many times and it never dawned on me. The record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of um, Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon. Okay, I got to get these out. Sorry. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uziah, Uziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, 
Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mat- Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. He was called Christ. Do you see the significance? In the deception of Laban, God's sovereignty was at work to bring about the Christ through the line of Jacob and Leah. You know, we may not understand all that God's doing through his sovereign will, but we can trust him to accomplish his perfect plan and purpose for us, right? Even in, even in situations that seem negative and bad, God is at work. He's sovereign. And we can trust him. Are you struggling to understand what God's doing in your life right now? Do you need to trust in his sovereign will? Maybe the second next step is for you today, and that's to just trust in God's sovereign will for my life, even when I don't understand. Laban already had his defense, his defense planned because he knew that Jacob would uncover his ruse. In the light of day, it was going to be obvious. Even if Leah was fully dressed, he was going to see those weak eyes, those delicate eyes. So Laban explains the custom of his people. They do not give the younger daughter in marriage before the older daughter. This custom was not something that was taken lightly because it would threaten the very core of their society. This is something that was set down. It wasn't something he just made up on the spot. But did Laban have this plan the whole time and just waited for seven years to spring the trap? Probably not. Perhaps he thought that during the seven-year service period that Jacob was doing that Leah would get married to someone else, and, and when that didn't happen, he saw a way to make sure that Leah would get married. And so while that might uh, have been Laban's thought process, God's sovereignty superseded his plans. Laban used the custom of his people to defend his de- deceptive acts, but he also had a proposal for Jacob. And he says, hey, if you work for me for another seven years, I'll give you Rachel as a second wife in just a week. I wonder if that was the longest week of Jacob's life, right? Those first seven years went by in a few days, and then he's like, I got to wait a week for Rachel, the one I really love. That might have been the longest week that Jacob ever experienced, but Laban required Jacob to finish that bridal week with Leah before he would give Rachel to him. And that really, that really shows the character of, of Jacob, I think. You know, he, he could have he said, this isn't what we bargained for, uh-uh, I'm sending her away. But he doesn't do that. Jacob agrees to the proposal, 
he honored his marriage to Leah, even though he entered it unaware. <laughs> Matthew says, once Jacob engages in sexual relations with the virgin Leah, the action is irrevocable, requiring Jacob to fulfill his honorable duty to the woman. And he does that. Through this, we see, the, again, the developing character of Jacob. He accepts responsibility for Leah because he recognizes that marriage is sacred and sexual union is sacred and binding. And that's our third principle today. Marriage and sexual union are sacred. Jacob certainly recognized this and he acted accordingly. Our culture today, including some within the church, have cheapened sexual union and marriage. More often than not, those who are getting married have already been sexually active prior to marriage and potentially they've um, even cohabitated with each other prior to marriage. Uh, Christianity Today did research on whether divorce rates are lower for religious people as versus non-religious people. And here's just a quote from uh, their online um, uh, findings. Without controls for age at marriage or an indicator for premarital cohabitation, women uh, with a religious upbringing do have slightly lower likelihoods of divorce. The annual divorce rate among married women with a non-religious upbringing is around 5%. For religious women, it's around 4.5%. There's not a great deal of difference there. When premarital cohabitation is included, the rates are still about the same for religious and non-religious, yet more couples who cohabitate before marriage get divorced than those who do not. So that's statistics. But what does the Bible say? That's what I want to know. It has a lot to say about sex before marriage and sex within marriage, and I'm just going to read several passages to you today. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, that is being sexually active before marriage. Impurity and debauchery. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But among you there must not uh, be even a hint of sexual immorality. There it is again or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in a passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, um, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So the Bible is clear that marriage and sexual union are sacred, especially among followers of Jesus Christ. We need to return to the standard of the Bible. So I would be remiss if I didn't exhort us today who are practicing sexual immorality to abstain from it until you're married. And it's going to take a lot of self-control, but that's what Paul challenged the Thessalonian believers to do, to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Accountability will be the key. You have to have another person of the same sex holding you accountable. It's doable. It's possible. We also serve a God of grace and mercy, don't we? 
And I know that there are those that have had to just repent of sexual immorality. And you've seen redemption through that, right? You've seen the grace of God at work in your lives. Now, Paul says... So Paul says, you know, do we, just, do we just keep on sinning so that grace may abound more? He says, no. No, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, God's grace is, is given to us when we genuinely repent and turn to him. And um, I just want to read this statement. If you're feeling stuck in sin or, or, repent, or repeating sin, perhaps you have prayed for salvation but haven't given God your whole life and pursued after him. When we make a decision for Christ, if nothing changes, like if we pray this prayer and nothing changes, and we just continue to do what we've always done and continue to do those habitual sins, we need to revisit what we did when we prayed and make sure that it wasn't a false conversion. Like when, when we genuinely make a, a decision for Christ, it, it just transforms us completely into the pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of, of purity and so I want to challenge us with that today. I don't want us to slip by this. I mean, that's what Jacob did. He honored this marriage, this sexual union that he had with Leah. We need to do the same. So after Jacob honored his commitment to Leah, Laban allowed Jacob to marry Rachel as well. Again, we see the narrator's note about Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah, who had been Laban's servant girl. Jacob kept the marriage bed sacred by waiting to marry Rachel until after the bridal week with Leah. Perhaps this particular situation with Jacob and his two sister wives is what brought about the law found in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 18, that says this, Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, having two sisters for wives was going to cause some problems. Abraham understood the difficulties of having two wives. Multiple wives is not what God designed for marriage. That's why these guys were having so many problems. His design for marriage was one man and one woman for a lifetime. And we see this unfortunate note at the end of this section that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, but notice that it does not say that Jacob did not love Leah, just loved her less. Jacob honors his agreement with Laban by working another seven years for him. Again, we see Jacob's character developing and growing. He could have just, he could have just left, right? He had gotten his wives. He was going to be going back to Canaan anyhow. He could have just left, but he doesn't. He works those seven years. So as we kind of just review today, is there a situation in your life right now that you need to patiently wait for God's timing and plan to accomplish? Do you need to trust in God's sovereign plan for your life, even if you don't understand what he's doing? And as a body of believers, is there something that we need to patiently wait on God for? Is there something we need to trust God's sovereign plan to accomplish in our body of believers? As we close today, I just want to read this illustration to you. 
There's a new reality dating show on Netflix called Love is Blind that tries to test whether relationships can be successful based on emotional connection rather than physical appearance. Couples are placed in separate rooms for a series of quote-unquote dates where they get to know each other without being able to see each other until the big moment when they're ready to get engaged. Then the engaged couples uh, get a month to spend time face-to-face before a marriage ceremony that that proves whether a blind beginning can guarantee true love. The show's creator explains the popularity of the show in a time where uh, social media and dating apps make so much of outward appearance. They quote, everyone wants to be loved for who they are on the inside. It doesn't matter where they live or where you live, what you look like, how old you are, what your background is, which class you know, or, or social structure you feel like you are a part of. Everyone wants to be loved for who they are. But is, love, but is blind love the way to love someone as they truly are? The British writer G.K. Chesterton wrote, once wrote, Love is not blind. That is the last thing that it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. Chesterton argued that real love depends on commitment. The way to love someone as they truly are is to vow to love them no matter what comes, and the more one is committed to the vows of marriage, the less blind they are to the real person who desires to be loved. Isn't that great? It's not about love being blind, but it's about love being bound. Are you bound in your marriage today? I hope so. I hope so. As we just allow this... uh, message to sink into our hearts and minds. Would you just bow your heads with me as I pray as the worship team comes uh, to lead us in a closing song?